a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, everybody. This is Gino Borges. Thank you all for joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. The Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact. It is less about the outcomes or results of our actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the world of impact, illuminating one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Lisa Curtis. Lisa is a social entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley Foods, which is a B corporation, which includes a team of entrepreneurs, product developers, and change makers who are improving lives through sustainable nutrition and livelihood for women and farmers using moringa plant. Cooley Cooley was launched using a crowdfunding campaign, and Cooley Cooley now has several initiatives with Whole Foods, the Clinton Foundation, Haiti Program, and Smallholder Farmers Alliance. <clears throat> well, welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. How how does one start a business through a crowdfunding campaign? Where did the inspiration come from? Like, I want to start by reaching out to a bunch of people I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the inspiration comes out of necessity in some ways. So I started Cooley Cooley after working with Moringa and the Peace Corps and. Uh, Peace Corps is great at many, many things. It's it's not great at giving you a ton of cash to start a business with. So when I got back from Peace Corps and you know started looking into how do I get Moringa onto the market, how do I even just do a first full scale manufacturing run, I realized that I, I simply didn't have the capital to do it. And um, you know I started talking to investors, and everybody was like, "This is crazy. You're gonna source this." plant nobody's ever heard of from you know Africa a continent that's not known for producing high quality food products and you're gonna you're gonna sell it here in the U.S. like that that just isn't gonna work um but at the same time a lot of my friends and family thought you know this this sounds like a great idea and so I uh, just started it as like well maybe you know if they believe in it if I can get enough people to put in small amounts of money, then I can get enough money to do a first manufacturing run. Nice. Let me ask you um, just a small sort of technical, I think actually it might sound better without the earbuds. Ah, sure. Yeah. Let me try that again. Is that working? Yeah, that's much better, actually. Okay, cool. So where did, um, I mean, it's one thing to be, um, you know, going to Africa and as a helper. And then there's another, and there's a whole nother level about turning your help into an entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, is it your family's background that uh, provided you with uh, a sense of confidence around being an entrepreneur uh, or was this somebody you talked to or is this something that you had to come to yourself just sort of curious about how you went from being part of a peace corps to a social entrepreneur yeah um my parents are both dentists uh so they would tell you uh you know businesses they do run a small dental practice but um, that this is a little different from what they do in their day-to-day life. Uh, that being said, they always encouraged us, and I'm one of three girls, that we had, you know, grown up in the 
Bay Area in America, you know, in middle class family. And um, we had a lot of privilege and that our responsibility was to use that to do something good for the world. Um, and we would, my mom was the church deacon for a while and would do, we do a lot of making food for the homeless shelters and um, kind of, you know, meeting and, and chatting with people there and walking dogs at the animal shelter and, um, you know, giving, doing gift drive, donation drives during the holidays. So um, it's always sort of giving back and supporting your community has always been a, a big part of my life. And how do you see this as, um, where does becoming a social entrepreneur feel like you're giving back versus like, oh, I'm also running a business here. And then how do you sort of negotiate the giving initiative and leading with your heart, but then all of a sudden being inundated with numerous operational details on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, um, you know, I like to say no market, no mission, but if we don't do a good job of creating a market for Moringa here in the U.S., then all of these small farmers who are become, have become quite dependent on Kulipuli for their livelihoods um, aren't, aren't going to have an income. And so, I mean, it, to me, it, it feels like it's even more of a responsibility than it would be if it was just like, Oh, you know, the responsibility to our investors. Like we also have investors. I also feel responsibility to them, but uh, for all of them, this isn't, uh, you know, their entire livelihood at stake. So um, I, I would say it pushes me harder to build a successful business. And what does being pushed hard sort of look like? I mean, when on, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, when see, like, I mean, how are you any different than uh, somebody who's running a conventional uh, dry cleaning shop? I mean, like, what's unique about going beyond uh, just providing a service? But, I mean, you obviously have multiple stakeholders, and I think you and believe you have a particular vision. Yeah. I mean, I think all entrepreneurs work hard, right? So I'm, I'm not going uh, to try to make that a competition. Um, but I think for me, it, it's, you know, this is not just my job, it's also my life's purpose. And I think that means that I, I am always thinking about Cooley Cooley. I'm always talking to people about Moringa. You know, I'm, I'm going to a wedding this weekend and my whole suitcase is full of product because I'm, I'm going to meet a bunch of new people and they're going to ask me and I'll be like, here, try it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of ways that being that passionate and that committed to your enterprise shows up. Um, and where for you might be the limitations of passion? Like where might it all, all of a sudden curtail your full capacity to actually be um, all in um, with a particular product for, you know, the outside world. Like where, like, I mean, where do you bump up against the sort of the limitations of being all in with a company as your life purpose, as opposed to a lot of people do work in the world, but, but then they also leave it behind. Yeah. Yeah, my husband's really good at that, and I'm always quite jealous. <laughs> um, uh, so I think for me, I am the the limit for me is is health, and I am militant about my health and the health of my team and you know everyone we we work with. And so um, I I work a ton, but I also go running most mornings. So you know I I have. I have created a, a pretty nice lifestyle. I ride my bike 15 minutes to work. I run around the lake next to our office. I shower at the gym downstairs. Um, I meditate for 10 minutes every morning. I eat a really healthy breakfast of all these like, you know, oatmeal and superfoods that we keep here in our office. And, um, and I, you know, when I travel, I make sure that I often, often I'll bring a lot of food with me, both Cooley Cooley products and some other products. And, 
Um, just make sure that I make time to go running is a big thing for me and doing a, a quick meditation and um, just kind of keep myself in a good place. And that allows me to, to do so much more. And uh, sleep is the other big component. I'm pretty militant about getting you know, eight hours consistently. Yeah. And how, um, just so related, I'm, uh, a lot of things you were talking about were physical health, whether the food, the running, the biking, and you mentioned a little bit about the meditation. Curious about how um, the militancy for health, not only for yourself, but your team at an emotional and sort of social level plays out and transpires. Like, how do you keep that alive? Yeah, I mean, I think I am constantly thinking about balance and culture and how do we we're, we're a startup like we're not a traditional nine to five everybody here works a lot and works very hard and um we try to make sure that we recognize when people maybe you know crossed over a limit and encourage them to, to take some time off you know go get a massage or, or something and um, we do have what we call responsible time off, where it's, it's essentially an unlimited vacation policy where we tell people, you know, just be cognizant of what's going on at the company and, and don't, you know, overburden other people on your team or, or drop balls. But as long as you can say, this is, you know, everything that needs to get done is going to get done, then yeah, sure, you know, take, take time when and where you need it. What's that look like? Is he, I mean, is that a common thing uh, within um, startups, food companies, or, I mean, is this a Lisa Curtis, like, I don't want to work in any other type of culture, so mm-hmm. uh, I need to be out in front and really leading on, I mean, this front? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of tech companies in the Bay Area, and a lot of them have unlimited vacation policies. And it, I would say 90% of those companies, people don't take vacation. Um, you actually see sort of a, a decrease in the amount of vacation taken. Um, at Cooley Cooley, we average three to four weeks of vacation a year and plus, you know, 11 days of company holidays. So we we do. We, we take a, a, a good chunk of vacation. And um, I think that that's really just leading by example and saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the day off. I'm going camping, you know? What do you think the social or systemic reasons are for people not taking the vacation, even though they have it available to them? Yeah, I think it all comes back to culture and what are the cultural norms. Um, and I know, you know, I have friends who work at companies like that where they're like, yeah, sure. I have unlimited vacation, but nobody else on my team ever takes vacation. And if I take vacation, it's like, I'm the one who's always out or, you know, I'm the one that people are like, uh, you know, Sarah's always gone or whatever. Um, so I think it is key to lead by example and to show you know, what that balance looks like um and i also do it, it sort of and me and my a lot of my team also recognize that like hey there might be you know times where i'm traveling like tomorrow i'm, I'm going to a wedding and i'm going to be online for like part of the day and then offline for part of the day and so is that a vacation day no not quite but um there's a lot of kind of in between that i think the the accessibility of, you know, webcams like this and, um, and having our whole life on our phone makes it, it possible for us to work in a lot of different ways. So we want to make those accessible. Yeah. So how much is, uh, how much is shame and honor, uh, drive a lot of people in, uh, the seemingly enlightened workspace of the tech community in the Bay Area, um, and yet no one's um, taking the white space necessary to restore, uh, to heal, to rest, uh, to dream, uh, to create. Um, how much is sort of shame and honor? I think you started touching on it. It's like no one wants to be the one person who 
a SEFSA because nobody else is. I mean, why wouldn't they all get together as a small group and say, look, guys, this is silly. Um, why are we intrinsically or internally feeling obliged to be here? And yet internally, I also know I need to, to break from you guys in order to restore and be, um, you know, feel renewed and bring fresh ideas, fresh energy to uh, the group. Curious on where uh, just sort of shame and honor sort of play play a deeper role into why people are doing what they're doing to themselves and cultures doing to them. Yeah. Particularly startup culture. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I haven't actually worked at a, a tech startup. I've worked sort of clean tech because as close as I've gotten, but yeah. um, I think, I mean, I think it broadly in entrepreneurship, we sort of fetishize this idea of working all of the time and pouring all of yourself in there. And it's, you know, it's honorable to be working every weekend and, um, you know, it's shameful to be taking vacation. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that somebody said to me pretty early on that was really interesting is that if you pour your entire self into your company and that, you know, you, Lisa, are coolie coolie and there's no there's no sort of like other thing there, um, then you're not going to be able to weather the ups and downs of the startup journey because you're going to feel everything so personally. Um, and so I think for me, you know, I am a hundred percent in it. You know, I, like I said earlier, this is, is my life's purpose, but I also make time to be with friends and family, make time to, you know, take, care of myself, make time to, to go hiking and, and do activities I love. Um, and I think that helps me approach things in a better way so that I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of like riding the roller coaster, but I'm maybe like one level off the track and can kind of see things a little bit, a little bit of distance. And so is, um, Moringa, in this sense, so is it a means to an end or is it the end? Because it sounds like it can be a lot of different um, things that could provide this particular um, goal of giving back. And it was a particular indelible experience, I'm guessing, in Africa. And I'd like for you to explore that a little bit. I'm just trying to understand where the, uh, the Moringa sort of is the vehicle for a larger vision and then yet it's also this material nutritional product as well and so and so how how you sort of navigate like what's the origin of why moringa and then where like where is it also a means to a larger end and also just it's simply an end like i want to get moringa to people yeah yeah, it's a good question. So I, I certainly didn't come into the world saying, I want to start a Moringa business. You know, that's not, not something I woke up one day and was like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so yeah, going into Peace Corps Niger and, you know, was in a rural village, no running water, no electricity and, and not a lot of healthy food. And so as a vegetarian was, was feeling pretty weak off of millet and rice every day. And a couple of women in my village pulled these leaves off a tree and handed them to me mixed in this, this popular West African snack called Coolie Coolie and said, eat this, it'll make you feel better. And so that's, uh, it did, it made me feel a lot better. And I did some research and I was like, this plant is amazing. It's packed with protein. It's packed with iron, has so many vitamins, so much nutrition. Why isn't everyone here eating it? And long story short, discovered, you know, after lots of conversations that people weren't eating it because they weren't growing it and they weren't growing it because there wasn't a market for it. And um, so they basically asked me, you know, can you help us create a market for this plant? And, you know, age 22, I was like, sure, <laughs> why not? I'll do that. Um, so and now I'm you know, over 30 and still going strong. Uh, so I, yeah, went, came back to the U.S. and um, really determined to, to help to create a market for Moringa here in the U.S. and do it in a way that supported specifically women farmers like the women I've been working with in Niger. And so that is 
uh, been quite the journey of, of figuring out, you know, how to, what types of products to put Moringa into, how to make it taste really good, how to get people excited about it. Um, and I think, you know, for me, Moringa is just the beginning. I think there's so many amazing nutrient rich crops all over the world. And so many of our farmers are like, have you heard of tiger nut? Have you heard of baobab? Have you heard, you know, how about this? How about this? How about this? So um, we're really interested in this idea of how do we start to incorporate other plants, other really nutritious plants into our supply chain and, and grow them alongside Moringa in this really beautiful sort of agroforestry method and then sell those products um, here in the U.S. So I think it's a, a platform that will allow us to do a lot more in terms of bringing new crops into the American consciousness and developing really sustainable supply chains around them. Now, how does it um, stack up against other nutrient-dense foods that are available locally to us as opposed to um, using carbon to transport food around the world? Um, how does Moringa and how do you sort of navigate that um, awkward reality of being environmentally conscious, aware of climate change, aware that increased carbon to move food products around the world um, increases um, the whole sort of, you know, sort of accentuates the moment. Like, what's yeah. the case to be made and how do you sort of navigate that when I can, well, I can grow beets and pumpkin seeds and hemp and um, all kinds of rich protein sources very close to me. Um, so I'm trying to understand how you sort of navigate that um, reality. Totally. And I, I mean, I think it's something we should ask about with Moringa. I think it's something we should ask about with coffee. I think it's something we should ask about with you know, chocolate, cacao. Um, there's a lot of amazing plants that we just can't grow in America. And so we get them from the tropics. With Moringa specifically, we have done some research. We partnered with a, a team at Yale to do a full carbon life cycle assessment um, and I was actually super surprised by the results because I thought that the majority of the carbon would be in this, you know, transporting product from West Africa to California, um, but actually found that the majority of the carbon is in the packaging was number one. Um, and so that's something we, we recently joined a, a group of another, a bunch of other sustainable food companies in the Bay Area who are all trying to figure out, like, how do we develop better food packaging? So Cliff Bar is part of it, you know, many others. Um, so we're, we're very focused on that. And then the second one was actually just crazy to me that people actually emit more carbon just driving to the grocery store and, and picking stuff up and then from it coming over, you know, from from Africa. And I think that has to do with the fact that we're, it's kind of a highly efficient process in the sense that we're sending full shipping containers full of, you know, 10 metric tons of Moringa. Um, and then when you sort of get it here, you divide that down by a, a much smaller amount. So um, it's, it's definitely something, you know, we ideally would like to be carbon neutral. And that's something we're, we're looking at this year to, to just figure out kind of what would it take for us to, to do that completely because we know that you know planting the moringa trees and, and helping them continue to grow does offset some of our carbon but I think there's more we could do to offset more carbon. And is the um, how does it stack how, how does moringa stack up against other forms of protein whether it's pea, hemp, pumpkin and it seems like there's some element there's some new protein powder out on a weekly basis. It seems like that. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of protein on the market. Uh, Moringa is the only green that I know of that provides a complete protein. Um, and it's the only green that I know of that provides uh, as much as is rich in protein as it is. So you're getting about, it's about a third protein by weight. Um, and you know, it doesn't just matter like the amount of protein, it also matters the quality of the protein. 
and the quality of Moringa's protein is really, really high. You're getting all nine of your essential amino acids and actually you know, even more than that, it's about 18 different amino acids. So um, yeah, it's, it's great for folks who you know, are plant-based or don't eat a, a ton of meat. So you started uh, Marengo, or you start Cooley Cooley, I should say, with a with a crowdsourcing, and eventually um, you move from crowdsourcing to a typical, um, I'm guessing, a typical financing mechanisms to to finance growth. Uh, whether it's you went beyond the friends and family to a Series A round, I'm guessing at this point. Take yeah. us through the journey of having to um, raise money and capitalize your business and having to ask for money and explain uh, why Cooley Cooley is deserving. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. I tell people I think I've raised every type of capital that there you could possibly raise. Um, so we, we started out with a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Um, we then got a crowdfunding loan from Kiva. Um, we then did a crowdfunding equity campaign on AgFunder. Um, and then we did a sort of seed round of investment from quite a few different investors, um, mostly angels in the impact space. So um, that that was kind of our, so our first seed round all-in investment was a million dollars. Round. Then we raised uh, three and a quarter million dollars Series A, and then we just closed uh, six and six point three four million dollars Series B. Um, so we've raised a bit over ten million uh, to date, um, and that is it, it's been interesting. So I think uh, the early days are the hardest. I think angel investors are so so important because they are the the first people who can actually yield the power to, to get businesses off the ground. Um, you know, we, for Series A, we actually had that led by Kellogg, um, and that wasn't something I anticipated. I didn't, you know, sort of at the face value, if you would asked me three years ago, is the maker of Frosted Flakes going to be excited to invest in Moringa? It just didn't. Uh, it didn't seem like a natural fit, but the more I got to know the Kellogg team and the more I, I learned about, you know, their incredible work through their foundation, which you know owns uh, about 30% of the Kellogg company um, to improve nutrition around the world and just how deeply they care about that um, and how much they really, really resonated with Cooley Cooley's mission and, and how deeply they wanted to add value. I um, was like, okay, this, this feels like the right partnership. Um, and then for Series B, that round was actually led by Griffith Foods, which is another large um, food company. They're a food product development company. And so they um, are actually helping us to commercialize Moringa as an ingredient, which has been really exciting. So did those – how do you get to the point where um, – maybe that's not the right word to – or not the right way to think about it, but um, are these larger companies, whether it's Kellogg and I know that other companies um, are doing this as well, food companies are buying interest in small artisan food companies. And is it because as a legacy food company, it's very difficult um, just from a cultural inertia perspective to actually generate these kind of innovations internally and they realize like, well, we probably can't do this internally, but they're, the food scene is trending this particular direction. So we uh, will join them. Um, obviously that culture is much more MBA mentality um, and MBA driven. And so I'm wondering where does their strategy uh, bump up and while um, seemingly supportive, where does sort of the artisan food maker who's obsessed about quality, who's obsessed about treating everybody well, and yet we, to some extent, scale all of a sudden starts um, blinding different points of the supply chain. Um, that sense of care that we can provide 
when we're small starts to soften around the corner. It tends to be like that. So how, how did you approach these companies and say, look, I have this particular vision. It started with this essence. I want it to continue. I know that you can help me in X, Y, Z. How do we continue without becoming part of the problem in, in essence, you know, the, the seemingly the big food problem? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of them are, are very much motivated by the idea that uh, taste preferences have changed tremendously over the, the past 10 years. And a lot of these natural, organic, you know, food brands really hold the key of, of what consumers are looking for. So, you know, I know from, from Kellogg's 1894, their, their venture capital arm, they're really looking to learn um, and they're really looking to to see how they can bring what they call kind of the soul of a startup and infuse that into the Kellogg company. Um, and I think for us, we're looking to understand like, how do you scale this? How do you, how do you take something that is high impact and high quality and scale it and, and get it out there in a bigger way? So I think there is a, a real win-win that is, is happening with a lot of these deals. And, um, I'm actually, I'm actually drinking a smoothie as he, you can see, as we speak. <laughs> um, you put some moringa in there? <laughs> no, actually I don't. It's pumpkin seeds, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm curious about how you scale. Um, I mean, you're a very hard driven, very conscious of culture. Um, is your interest in scaling to get the vision out or is there a sort of a financial reality that in order to make this um, financially stable that it has to reach a certain point? And I bring this up because it's the second part is, is the startup after experiencing and starting a food company, is the startup way of financing the right way of financing food in particular? And I bring this and I share this with you because I think there's a difference between financing products and services that transcend space and time versus financing products that are tied to space, time, and the inertia of the earth. And I'm wondering where you have seen where the essentially the tech model of financing food with it, I mean, which is what's going on here um, starts creating potential pressure down where it's inconsistent in with the inherent qualities of the product that you're providing. It's one thing to create an app that's not tied and you can WhatsApp and share WhatsApp with the world, but you can't share. I mean, you can only spread a physical product that's grown in the earth so fast in order to ensure quality supply chain, treat workers fairly and so forth. How have you navigated needed when, where did you need to push back and say, that's too fast. Um, that's just not real with these kinds of products that we're trying to provide and the vision of what we're trying to do here. Yeah. I, and I think, uh, you know, whether, I think it's a good question. I think whether or not to take on VC money is a really personal question for different businesses and different entrepreneurs. I've always wanted to scale. I've always wanted this to be a massive company because for me, if we're a massive company, then we are supporting a huge number of farmers. We are getting a highly nutritious climate smart crop into the hands of so many more consumers. Like, I just think there is an inherent good in us being bigger. Um, and I think, you know, we, everyone understands that when you take on investor money, those investors are going to want to get their money back at some point. And I, you know, there's, there's three ways to do that. You either become super profitable and you, you buy them all out, which I know Guayaquil did recently some investor buyouts possible. You go and Cliff Bar, another example, you, you go public, you go kind of the Annie's route and, and go public or beyond meat. 
um, or you you sell at some point. And you know, for us, we became a full fledged benefit corporation. So we're a B corp, and then we also changed our, our legal structure to be a benefit corporation um, with the idea that that we want to do what is best for not just profit, but also purpose. And if we think that, you know, we can create a bigger impact by being a part of Kellogg or General Mills or whoever, then then we're going to do that. But if we think that, you know, actually it's better for us to remain private and, and really, really focus on profitability, then we're going to do it that way. Um, so I, I think, I mean, to me, the main difference between tech and Food and I, I talked, spent a lot of time with a lot of tech investors. Um, is I think food isn't going to scale in the same way that that tech scales. You're not going to go from one to a billion overnight. Um, you know, there's not a lot of like Instagrams of food. Um, but by the same token, you generally aren't going from zero to zero overnight either, um, because you are selling a, a product and you are you know, making money and you can get indicators pretty early on of like, you know, is this product selling in stores? Does it work? Um, so I think uh, I tell folks that, you know, they, if they're kind of betting on these high growth tech stocks, they should also invest in some, some food bonds. <laughs> food bonds. I like that. Uh, what size is, am I thinking about this right when I say the moringa market or is it the protein market or how are you viewing the market? Yeah. So we'd say most of the people who use our moringa use it because they want more greens in their diet and they specifically want a really healthy, amazing green like moringa. Um, and so for a lot of folks, you know, they're like, I know I should eat more kale, more spinach. I don't always have time. Let me grab this bar. Let me grab this shot. Let me add this uh, this powder to my smoothie. Um, and it's an amazing way to get the greens on, get the greens on the go. Mm. The, um, talk a little bit about how you shaped the team and Where's the team at now? Where has it been? Um, share with us a few inevitable challenges that happen when growing a team. Um, something that you may be occupied with right now, um, either finding talent or just fits that you thought were good fits. And how does one cultivate culture and grow a team at the same time? Yeah, it's it's a. Uh Team is the hardest part. I think that's what nobody tells you when you start a company is that, um, you know, you're not running a company of robots, you're running a company of humans. And um, you need to make sure all those humans are the right humans, that they're in the right jobs, that they're motivated in the right ways, um, and that they you know, continue to feel like they can bring them full, their full selves to work and, and be be happy and, and productive. So um, I spent a lot of my time thinking about culture, even though we're only a team of 12, we're a relatively small team. Um, and we, so when I came back from Peace Corps, the first thing I did was, was talk to friends about this because I knew it was something that I really wanted to do, but I didn't want to do it alone. Um, and so I recruited some friends who had experience in food, some friends who had experience in tech, some food, friends who had experience in design. Um, so there ended up being four of us that all came together to really get this company off the ground. Um, and they've, they've all been incredible. So, you know, they've had two of us who kind of originally started and are still here. Um, two other folks have gone on their separate ways and, you know, I think there's an, an interesting moment where you kind of realize, oh, maybe the company has changed and the person have changed and they haven't really changed in the same direction. They sort of changed in, in different directions. Um, and so for me, I think I had a really hard time letting go at first. Of, you know, no, I, I want 100% retention. I want everyone who, you know, to be here forever. Um, and it, it actually took me a little while to realize that's not the goal. Um, the goal is for, for people to, to show up 
a hundred percent and to be, you know, a hundred percent happy and fulfilled. Um, but it's not actually a hundred percent retention. And that like, especially as a, a fast growing company that the company needs change. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of folks who have clinical their first job after college or after Peace Corps. And so their life changes too and what they want and where they want to take their career changes and, and that's okay. Um, so we've had, you know, relatively quite low turnover, but um, we did recently have a few folks move on. And at first I was so upset and then I realized that we were actually able to bring in folks who were a much better fit for, for where the company was and a, a much better fit for those roles. So I've I've kind of, um, you know, learn it, learn it as I go. I think I've, I've learned, a, learned a lot. And how do you typically hire? Is it word of mouth? Um, how, how, how does one find tight fits for, for Cooley Cooley at this point? Yeah, so we, you know, we advertise on a, a bunch of different job platforms, everything from like traditional sort of Indeed to more impact like B Corp and Peace Corps job boards to really trying to target more people of color. So we are advertising on a lot of HBCUs and um, other type of networks like that. Um, and then I also will contact people on LinkedIn and kind of, you know, and spread it to friends and, and try to get the referral network going as well. Um, but one of the things that I realized, uh, you know, uh, relatively recently is that people often join the company because they sort of see themselves in it. Um, and so it's often very reflective of the founder. Um, so a lot of companies have trouble, you know, a lot of startups have trouble hiring women. I have trouble hiring men. Um, all we get are, are white women <laughs> applying. Um, and so we, you know, we've been making a really active effort to like, how do we, how do we make sure that the people we hire are really reflective of this amazing diversity that we see in Oakland and, you know, also the diversity of cultures that we work with through our Moringa supply chain. Um, so we've been spending a lot of focus on, on broader recruitment efforts. What are your insights into why it's difficult to get men to, um, you know, apply to Cooley Cooley? <laughs> um, you know, I think there's, I think food often, you know, traditionally is kind of a more of a, a female space. Um, so you do see some of that. And then I really do think it has to do with the founders and the pictures of who they see on the website. So when I was at a, a clean tech startup before this, I did all of our hiring there and it was founded by two white men and all, all the applicants we got were white men. So um, I think you know, it does. But, yeah, but um, I mean, let's explore that. I mean, what's what's happening there? Whether it's that previous company or Cooley Cooley, I mean, um, I mean, I think there's something rich there potentially to really understand, and what's being lost as a result of this um, pattern um, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly what's being lost is that you you don't get a diversity of perspective. Um, like we know that a lot of folks within the Latinx community really resonate with Moringa. We hear this over and over again at events and, um, you know, in certain parts of the country, like Florida and Southern California, people are like, oh, Moringa, I've grown up eating Moringa. It's, you know, natural treatment for diabetes, great for weight loss. Like these are things that a lot of folks from different parts of South America and the Caribbean know. Um, and for a long time, we didn't have anyone on our team who spoke Spanish. Um, and I think that was a real loss. So we, we made an active effort to let, let's find some folks who are part of that community. But is there something else going on about, regardless of whether we try to be diverse, that um, people naturally are gravitating to people that look like them, feel like them. And so we're constantly having to sort of push back on that lack of a better term, a sort of a natural attraction, um, a primal attraction? I mean, I think it's it's like the the school lunch hall, right? Like, you know, I distinctly remember I went to a public middle school and there was there was all the, 
the black kids sat in one corner, all the Latino kids sat in one corner, all the sort of preppy white kids in one area, all the like poorer white kids in one area. Like it's just, we self-segregate over and over and over again. And so I think you you do have to be really conscious of it um, and and make a real effort to, to not just perpetuate that. Yeah. How does... Um... Take me to this idea of do your suppliers also visit you? I know there's always the tendency for us to go to suppliers, um, but how many of the suppliers actually come to visit Cooley uh, Cooley in the states? Yeah, so uh, as much as as much as we can get them there, we we do. It's obviously a you know pretty pretty long trip, but we do find a, a fair amount of our suppliers. Um, will come to San Francisco for meetings or, or that kind of thing. And, and we always invite them in and you know, want them to meet our full team and want to hear the story in person in addition to us visiting them. So actually just yesterday we had a supplier in from Zimbabwe who came and did a little presentation to our team about their work and you know talked about how we gave them some ideas of, of different processing techniques they could use to continue to improve the quality of their Moringa. You've mentioned to me a moment of time where there was a moment when starting Cooley Cooley that you almost, you had to ask yourself, is this, is this it? Can you talk about what happened at that point in time that sort of led you to this like, oh wow, is this how it ends? Yeah, I think there's been actually a lot of those moments, but the <laughs> one that you're talking about specifically was when we had gotten confirmation from Whole Foods that they wanted to launch our Moringa powder and our Moringa green tea shots nationwide, and that was our first nationwide launch. We were two years into the market, um, and then a couple months after we got that news, uh, we heard from our Moringa supplier, our only Moringa supplier at the time, which was this women's cooperative in Northern Ghana, that there had been a huge wildfire and the entire operation had burned down. Um, so they're basically like, sorry, we have no Moringa to sell to you. And um, it was one of those moments where you're like, I don't know if we're going to come out of this. Uh, this feels really hard. Uh, but we ended up finding this amazing family farm in Nicaragua that it was growing Moringa and has some miraculously had Moringa available that we could, could source. And wow. And then we've, we've diversified our supply chain into, you know, 11 different countries from there. So we learned, we learned that lesson the hard way. And when you talk about geography, most people don't know where, um, Moringa is, um, grow and can you talk a little bit around where the sweet spot is around the earth for uh for moringa yes moringa grows in the subtropics so it's everywhere kind of a broad swath of south and central america and a good part chunk of africa and then a good chunk of southeast asia um so everywhere from you know mexico to Brazil to um, to Ghana to Uganda uh, to South Africa and then to sort of like India Cambodia um, so it's a it's a lot of lot of different countries and it's consumed differently in different places which has been really interesting um, such as so in the Philippines moringa is the national vegetable um, they call it malunga. And it's used a lot in soups and a lot in pesto. Um, so it's kind of more, yeah, more like, you know, savory ingredient, so to speak. Um, in Senegal, Moringa is called mother's milk. And it's often used by new moms to enhance lactation. Um, in Niger, where I was living, um, Moringa is often called the tree of life. And it's called the tree of life in a lot of Africa and um, the idea being that, you know, if you don't have anything else to eat, you can eat Moringa and it gives you most of what you need to, to survive. And and in the States, um, I'm guessing it's smoothie. Uh, it's mostly 
uh, smoothie supplement, but um, is that a correct assumption on how it's being used in the States? Yeah, so we often find people will start purchasing it for their smoothie, so they'll either get the pure moringa powder or they'll get one of our smoothie mixes. Um, and then, so, you know, we, we try to encourage them on the back, like there's different ways to use it. And so we'll find kind of some smoothies. People will often go to like lattes, like, oh, this tastes kind of like matcha, but it's actually even better for me. I can use it there. And then um, sometimes they'll be like, oh, or I can also mix it into my hummus or mix it into my pesto or my guacamole. And um, we often demo with, you know, moringa guacamole or moringa hummus just to show people that you can use it in a diverse, diverse set of ways. I'm sold. I wish I would have heard this a lot earlier. I'm so impressed by, for me, it's just a smoothie mix. And you just shared with me about half a dozen examples of what else I already eat that it could be implemented into. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll, we'll make sure to get you some moringa after this. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll have to go to one of the weddings that, that you attend since you take it to your weddings. True, true. Uh, I take yeah. it to, I always have moringa on me, so if you ever see me, you can just be like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, we're coming up to uh, closing time. Is there anything that uh, was touched upon that you'd like to share a little bit more on or something that wasn't uh, brought up? That feels like a part of your journey um, to bring uh, Moringa to the States, to create a market, to help out people uh, originally in Africa, but now in multiple subtropical countries. Just like to uh, understand if there's something left in your soul that um, yearns to share about um, not only where you started, but where you've come to at this point. Yeah, I think the last thing I'll share is that you know, a lot of people are like, wow, you've started this amazing business, but it it really wouldn't be possible without the amazing Moringa entrepreneurs who we partner with who are doing such incredible work. And in my mind, even harder than, you know, selling Moringa in the U.S. is, is growing super high quality Moringa in rural parts of Africa or, you know, Nicaragua. Um, and they have done so much to produce a really high quality product and also really benefit the community where the, the product is sold. And so we're, we're just honored to be partnering with them. Well said. Thank you. This is Gino Borges with the journey to impact a virtual fireside chat series here with Lisa Curtis of Cooley Cooley foods. Thank you, Lisa, so much. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us and uh, sharing the good work and good fortune and uh, such a beautiful story. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good day, Lisa. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>